I don't know if she's still alive or not. They've had her now for the past 24 hours. I'm equally uncertain as to the fate of her father, Professor Elliot. Both are probably dead. The odds are 100 to 1, I too will be finished before another sun rises. But tonight I'm going to try to fight for my life in those larger issues so perilously at stake, affecting all mankind. Monster Island Resorters, and welcome back once again to the Monster Island Resort, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. I am your host, Miguel Rodriguez, and I bring you discussions of horror and history, arts, literature, film, and beyond. And today we are continuing our two-part look at Edgar G. Ulmer. Last time I had a great talk with Noah Eisenberg, who is the author of an Ulmer biography and a look at the filmography of Ulmer, a book called Edgar G. Ulmer, A Filmmaker at the Margins. Today I have a very exciting episode because I am going to talk to the daughter of Edgar G. Ulmer himself. Her name is Ariane Ulmer Sipes, and she is quite a vivacious personality. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation almost as much as I enjoyed having it. Sitting with us was a dog, a giant dog named Gandhi, I believe a a Great Dane mutt. So uh, you might hear some dog footsteps walking around. It was a very lovely dog. But that was the dog of author Noah Eisenberg's mother. So I want to thank her for letting us have her house in which to conduct this interview. But anyway, enough of me. Let's talk to Ariane. Well, sitting between myself and Ariane Ulmer Sipes, I have Gandhi, the Great Dane Mutt, a sizable horse of a dog. (laughs) So the first thing to get started, let's just talk about growing up as the daughter of Edgar Ulmer. After reading the biography especially, he had a tendency to present himself to the world in a certain exaggerated light. Would you say that he did that with his family as well? Yes. (laughs) In what way? Well, he was, first of all, a very strong personality. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly adored him, but I was a little frightened because he had this... He was bigger than life. Mm -hmm. And he had this exquisitely beautiful, deep voice with with a Viennese accent. So you put all these elements together and he wasn't your average daddy. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> Would he tell stories that may or may not have been true about his past or his experiences? Oh, he colored things. Yes. Well, we all do. Oh, right, of course. Okay, yes. but with his, they were a little more dramatic and a little more interesting than what the average person does with his own stories. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, there is no truth. It's a very much a Rashomon kind of life. Like the um, Kurosawa Rashomon. The, the yeah. Kurosawa, where mm-hmm. you see the same element of truth happening mm-hmm. from many different angles. It's different with each one, because we all perceive differently and grab things differently. 
And so he had that capacity. And being a storyteller, it, it got to be more interesting than the average person. Mm-hmm. But we all do it. Right, but he had a special, a special gift for it. Oh yes, he manufactured it, you know, in order to entertain himself, I think. And each time he tells the story, it gets a little twist here or there, <laughs> just to make it a little brighter and more interesting. And you think that kind of practice served him as an artist? Absolutely. Yeah. All artists have that element mm-hmm. to them. Reading the biography that Noah wrote, the first bit of it is all biographical rather than a look at the filmography and... That was one of the more fascinating aspects. Yes, yes. This idea is, okay, we're trying to recount the experiences of this person, but we have all of these stories that we have no idea which one's true or which one isn't. Well, they're all true. There are elements in each one. Mm -hmm. But it's very much like with writers also. People who tell stories Mm -hmm. often are speaking of their own experience a little bit juiced up and a little bit from a different angle. Absolute truth as such doesn't exist. I mean, unless you had an overview like if you believe in God, like God looking unless down. You're yes. <laughs> we we can only take what we can learn from that, each exactly. story. And, and, that's we, the ab- part. and we absorb what we need to for our own purposes. Especially from an artist who told stories for a profession. Oh, he was always telling stories. And he was very literate. And he was extremely interested in music and in culture. I mean, he had his own library in yeah. the house. And he and was a musician. He was a man who had been involved. With it. Actually, it was very difficult for me because he wanted to learn the piano when I was being taught the piano. Oh. And, of course, he wanted to play the well-tempered clavichord with me and things like that. And, of course, he learned much faster than I did. Oh, uh, yeah. So I finally just gave up. The competition was too much for me. <laughs> Did he want you to learn as fast as he did, or did he no, want to show up? No, and in up, some ways he up? was terribly patient. Oh, well, that's wonderful. You can't work with actors and with crew and oh, not yeah. have patience. I mean, he could he could lose his temper, you know, but <laughs> but generally speaking, he was kind and patient with his people that he was trying to get something out of. You know, you can't just bully everybody around you. And he tended to work with the same people over and over. Oh again. yes, that he loved his crew. Yeah. You know, it was a family. Right. It was a family. Yeah. If he could if he could get the same crew and the same people and around, him, and a lot of the yeah. same actors too. Yeah. No, no, there was deep friendship with the people that he was around for work purposes. Okay, so he had a very close friend with his cinematographer, Shuftan. He had a very close relationship with Leo Erdodi, who had done most of the music for him in all of the PRC years. He stayed very close with the makeup man, Pierce. Yes. He was very close friends uh, with his editors. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people were around the house and planning all the time because there was always a next picture coming up. Yes. Well, and a lot of them came from the same background. Yes. And they lived in a little bit of an isolation within Hollywood because it yes. was the European emigres. And yet at the same time, Dad was very much for American things like donuts and hot dogs, <laughs> loved baseball, really was crazy about boxing. But these were things that he did in his early years when he was picking up jobs at Pathé News and yes, things like that. Right. So he knew all of this stuff firsthand, and he was relatively young when that started. Right. So he was very American in some ways, culturally. He did get here in his 20s. 
Well, he got here actually the first time when he was 18. Okay. But that was on the East Coast. That was in New York. In New York yeah. on the Miracle. For um, Reinhardt. For Reinhardt, mm -hmm. and which he worked as one of many, many, many set designers. Yeah. Uh, people say, well, did he really? And I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And we even got the proof of the years that he came right. in on the emigration into uh, New York. And he brought his whole family. But it, it was much earlier than the the Hitler fear. But there was already a smack of something going on. Well, yeah. So we're talking about a very strange period between the First and Second World War. Oh, yeah. That area, Austria, Germany, was crushed really after the First World War. Yeah. Well, he had stood on the bread lines and mm -hmm. been an orphan sent to Scandinavia. So was his sister, and he mm -hmm. had a sister and brother that were sent to Holland. Okay, well, he was sent to Sweden. Sweden. Stockholm. He went to Stockholm and Uppsala. We have letters from the family, so. Yeah, and some, and some great images in the biography as well. Yes, I had that in the family books. <laughs> it's amazing the quality of some of those images. It's yes. striking. Yeah. We didn't set out to take 12 years to do the book. No. <laughs> but it was a blessing because it gave us 12 years in which to do the research and for things to surface and for us to clarify, at least as well as you can, the facts. Yes. You know, physically where he was and what he was doing, because he was a little bit like the boy who called Wolf. Yes. Everybody started thinking he was telling stories all the time. And he wasn't. He was telling the truth. Yeah. But he had just, you know, twisted a little. <laughs> and because sometimes it was outrageous, they discounted everything he said. They just said, this guy is a liar. Yeah. Period. <laughs> Don't believe a word Don't he says. Don't believe a word yeah. he says. <laughs> you know, which was unfortunate because I knew a lot of the facts. And I knew I'd been present, so I knew that this wasn't true. Yes. No, but now you can say it. They say, well, so you're the daughter. Well, what do you want? You want to believe him. I said, no, I don't want to believe him. I was there. <laughs> the topic of your father's personality, what he loved and waited. Last night at the book signing, you said that if he had been around today, he would be possibly considered manic depressive. Well, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, he had energy that was like manic almost. Yes. When he got going, I mean, he could go for day and night, for four days and four nights without ever sleeping. That would explain his output. Yeah. Yeah. He just had a terrific rush when he was going. And then there would be the depressive periods in which he would be sitting in this big blue chair in the house mm -hmm. in the dark or reading books, and we all knew not to go near him. He wasn't interested in eating or nothing. Was there any kind of trigger for those types of episodes? Well, usually it was when he wasn't getting work. Right. Or when something had gone completely awry on a film he'd just finished and... Maybe the studio was trying to recut it, you know, and something like that would, of course, shove him back into depression. Yeah. But I think it was cyclical, and his sister had it too. So I think it's in the family. And I have much less of a mood swing than That's he good. had, but I still have mood swings. Mm -hmm. And today it's not a problem because you have medications that can assist you when you get into those. Not to mention more of a wider recognition that it's an actual illness. Yes, it's also that it's an actual illness and that you're going to get out of it if you can survive it. But mm -hmm. in those days, I think that he was always, this is the last film. Mm -hmm. Will I ever get work again? Yeah, the uncertainty. The uncertainty of the nature of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And he had bad timing. 
which you have no control over. Yeah. This is just merely, I mean, he had no idea that television was coming up. Right. And that Who he, did? you know, <laughs> and when it hit, it closed down the motion picture theaters, mm -hmm. and he'd had enough with McCarthy. So he literally was pushed back to his homeland, Europe. And that would be around the time in the 50s and 60s when... What well, was 1949? It was 49, so just before the 50s erupted back to Europe. Back to Europe, yes. You called your life the gypsy lifestyle, partly because your father was finding work where he could get it, and yes. that tended to take him all over the yes. country, and of course going back to yes. Europe. So as a child growing up in that lifestyle, what would you say are some things that you learned from living like that? Well, first of all, you have to understand we were like a circus family. And my mother worshipped my father. She thought he was a genius, and she was privileged to be part of his whole deal. They never thought about my education. I was homeschooled. Yeah. I mean, and the travel was your education. Yes. And we should point out also your mother was his script supervisor. She was his script so supervisor. She was working on And she was well. also, you know, writing, rewriting everything he wrote because <laughs> his English was not his mother tongue. Right. Yes. You know, many of these guys, even somebody like Billy Wilder, he had an American co-writer that's the secret of they would have the idea, but then that was transposed into dialogue and into a, a form of English that you could present. Mm -hmm. Because my father couldn't write English that well. No. No. So he would talk to mother. They Amazing, were all, Yeah, when you think about, about it. The audacity. The audacity. <laughs> Fortunately, they had started in the silent film era. Yes where everything was visual and you didn't care about yeah, and that's language. Where, that's where I was thinking about Murnau. I was like, oh yeah, at least he had the benefit of Sunrise to be a silent film. A silent film and Taboo too. Yes. But it was a whole different era and approach. Many people say that cinema never was the same again because they hated the idea of sound. Yes. And Murnau couldn't be convinced that he should have sound. And many people agreed at the time too. Right? Yes. Yeah. It was a visual medium. Yes, and you were using, uh, for when you came into the period of sound, you had to use theatrical actors mm -hmm. because the, the visual actors had no idea oh. of how to, it wasn't just the question of their voices. They were like mimes. They were mimes, yeah. right, exactly. So this period was very hard for him in, in that regard. But on the other hand, when he wasn't working, he would read me... Uh, my bedtime stories mm -hmm. about the musicians, mm -hmm. or he'd tell me the life stories of the great writers. By the time I was 10, I had to read Dickens, yes. I had to read uh, Moliere, I okay. had to read Balzac, <laughs> and I had to give a book report on you sound. You a book report on Balzac at 10 years old? Yes. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you know, he had no idea that I, he really didn't think I needed a school. And besides, I was meeting the greatest people of that era. I mean, when we worked on Carnegie Hall, I mean, I, I knew Yasha Heifetz. Okay. I mean, Fritz Reiner was my godfather. You know, my middle name is Carlotta because that was Fritz Reiner's wife. So these people, Bruno Walter, have, I have pictures of me sitting in his lap. So that period I was really exposed to the artists yeah. that were, were really making this era fantastic. So we never worried about the fact that we were poor. Because you were experiencing an enriched life in, in another way. In another way. And I mean, we were very poor sometimes, and sometimes we lived like princes. When, in the latter years, when we were living in Italy and it was still impoverished there, 
we had gorgeous houses and chauffeurs and five in help and fancy clothes and buying stuff you know in in Paris he would take me to the to pick out all of the materials and then he had the dressmakers that were working on the picture making all my clothes I mean you know on, on one end we had nothing on the other end we were living like a 1950s post-war Italy yes yeah very uh, when there were Looking for an identity. Yeah. Yeah, right before La Dolce Vita. <laughs> yes. Completely everything changed. Well, later on, I would do dubbing. Actually, I did Dolce Vita. I, I met my future husband doing Cabiria. Oh. <laughs> I, was, I was directing it in Paris at the dubbing studio. Oh, so, interesting. You know, so my life didn't change even after I grew up. Right. Uh-huh. And went on my way in life. Well, by the time it's in your blood, I assume, right? Well, I was in my late thirties by the time <laughs> I, my father passed. Mm-hmm. You know, and we so we went back and forth and back and forth with each other all the time. If he needed a dubbing done on his films that he was doing later, I mean, guess who did it? <laughs> you were always his go-to. As yes. a child, you were his child actor. <laughs> yeah. so. But that was true of uh, the whole family. We had, I can remember he bought for us one year a 14-karat gold charm that hung on our neck. And it's, it was in three pieces for my mother, me, and dad. And it said, just we three. And when I was about 16 and on my own already, I said to him, Dad, what happens if I find a fourth one or a fifth one? I mean, what is this? What, just me three? You know? yeah. He says, don't bother with men. Have a good time, but don't get married. <laughs> Says the man who relied so much on your mother. <laughs> yeah, but that was a different story. That was a different story, yeah. His daughter, he didn't want to have that. <laughs> I wasn't out to worship anyone except other than myself at the time. And your family. Yeah. yeah so that's funny. Up until you're 16 anyway, you're at the behest of your father's work, going to New York, going to Well, I New came Mexico. back into it. I came back to them when I was around 17. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So, so not I came back to Hollywood, so I was on the set again okay. on, on a lot of pictures yeah. and working with him again. And all over the place. Yes, and when I was 20... I guess I was just about 21 when we went back to Italy and he was doing one of his Hannibal, I think. Yes, Hannibal. So, I mean, there are pictures of me on the set working uh-huh. and I worked through Hannibal and I worked through Antonia. So, by that time, I was already 23, 24. So, I mean, I was back working with them. Even I didn't live with them, but I worked with them. So, even as a younger child, like, for example, in the 30s, when he's working on the Yiddish pictures in New Jersey... And the book talks about living in a in an area between nudists and neo Nazis, and then of course there's the whole uh, living in Italy in the brothel kind yes. of story. Yeah. yeah, tell me about what do you recall from those experiences? I did th- you know where you were at the time? Well, my mother found out. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you forget. I mean, my mother gets to, gets to this place in Taranto, mm-hmm. which was actually the whorehouse of the Italian Navy. I mean, the Italian Navy kept its own brothels for its young kids. Oh, my God. It's a different world than yes, here. Yes, it is, indeed. <laughs> and the boys were about 16, and the girls were around 12, 12 and 13 years of age. So yeah, they were contemporaries and girlfriends of mine, yeah. okay? Yeah, you would have been... Well, At the daytime, you, yeah. I was 12. Yeah, you would have been about the same age. Yes, yeah. oh, of course I became friends Good, with them. Nice. <laughs> In the daytime, they're not working as heavily, you know, because the boys are still working out on the ships. <laughs> the nighttime is when everything gets hot around there. That's true. That's true. 
It's like San Diego, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you got to realize that. <laughs> so my mother, what happened was, one day she says, right after we've arrived, maybe the second or third day we're there, she says, oh, Edgar, this bed is so, it's, it, the mattress is completely slung under. I mean, it's a very oh soft mattress. And How she said, you know, and then she says, why do you think there's a mirror up there on the ceiling? <laughs> so fine. She was able to put two and two, two together. together. <laughs> and he looked at her and he says, I have to tell you something. I have no place else to do but the crew. Half of this building is still functioning. So at that point she says, I don't know what I'm going to do. How do I keep the daughter? I'm from the, she's over there right now having cappuccinos with the girls. <laughs> so, you know, I just was, I, and besides that, they were totally open people. I mean, mm -hmm. they were nudists, very much into the German health thing yes. that they were going on with. They were not uptight about sex, or they were not at all Protestant culture. You no. have to understand that. We're talking about in Italy right yeah. now. Yes. So, I mean... My father had been part of that Weimar period, which mm -hmm. was completely wide open. Yes. And we had a That's cross sexual got. group, yeah. you know, in our friends and in the people that we worked with. We had a gay community around us. Mm -hmm. So we didn't bother with these kind of things. We thought it was funny, but it didn't yeah. threaten us in any shape or form. No, it wasn't a form of terror. No, yeah. no, it wasn't something we couldn't handle. <laughs> you know, we just weren't interested in, in, in mm -hmm. that aspect at all uh, with people. Mm -hmm. So I, I was brought up in, in total freedom. And it gives you these stories that you can tell. That are just wild. Right, exactly. <laughs> They're wild without being sordid as well, no, which is no, interesting. No, they were And on the other side, my father was very protective of me. He was very strict. There was no messing around. It's an interesting uh, kind of... Dichotomy. Dichotomy, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, he could be very strict with me. I mean, I had to sit at the table with my back straight. Oh, yes. Well, well then there's your class and your yes. etiquette. etiquette. Yes. And my mother came from a, a, a wealthy, upper-class German-Jewish family that was like six generations New York. Yes. So you had to have good you know, table mm -hmm. manners and you had to handle yourself properly. I mean, I walked with books on my head and <laughs> I had the proverbial piano lessons and the mm -hmm. ballet lessons and all the other things. They saw to it that I, I had everything, but you just didn't pay for things usually. Yeah. It, I mean, like, for instance, in Italy, when I was 12, I had already been dancing ballet for maybe four or five years. Yeah. Well, they brought in Kira Nijinsky. Now, Nijinsky was the greatest male ballet dancer of his time, and this was his daughter. So she was brought in to do the choreography on the set. So she was also my ballet teacher. Wow. You know, she was there. She was there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we always had a way to get around things. You know, we lived in an artistic community. Looking at the films, educational films, ethnic films, crime and noir cinema, which of course Wilmer uh, mm -hmm. is really well known for. Uh, he worked as well on sci-fi, horror genre films. But all of them at some point had rather dark underpinnings, mm -hmm. either in the story or with the characters, whatever the protagonist was going through. Yeah, or the French call it modant. Modant, so, yeah. yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so can you talk about maybe perhaps your father's experiences either from World War One, his emigration during that period, that may have found a voice through his cinema? He was raised in Vienna, although his actual physical birth took place in the 
Moravia, which is the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. in a city called Olomouc. But I thought it was going to be like a, you know, a place where the Jews lived in a little city in like a little a shtetl. shtetl of some kind. Instead, he li- he was born in an exquisitely beautiful town with fabulous cathedrals and co- and, and it was a, a religious center. Mm-hmm. And it had because it's in the hills, it was cool in the summer, so that the royal family, the emperor and his court would go up there like the Pope goes to Castel Gondolfo yes, out of, of Rome because they go to the mountains to get out of the terrible heat and it's humidity the, um, of Vienna. A retreat. Yes. yes. So summertime would come and that village was German-speaking due to the fact that it was a royal village, mm-hmm. completely walled. The Czechs and the Jews had to live around the wall. They couldn't live within the wall after a certain hour of the night. Yeah. You were like the gypsies, thrown out. Yeah, okay. Time to go. Time to go. You can come in and be a tradesman during the day, <laughs> but you can't, you can't stay here. still want your levies and your taxes. <laughs> yes, but you have to go out, okay? Now, just around the time that Edgar was born, Emperor Franz Josef was very open to the Jews because he was getting money from them for the First World War. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, he loosened things up. They took down part of the wall of that city and expanded into apartment buildings, you know, like townhouses. And that was the Jewish section of the town where Edgar's family had a lovely apartment in a beautiful place. And I went back, I guess it was, oh, I guess about eight years ago. And we had a, a festival there. And they put up a plaque of Ulmer on the building that he was born in. But he was basically brought up in Vienna, so he was completely steeped in the musicians and the music of that city. And he wanted to be a conductor initially as a child, which he would continue the rest of his life. But when the First World War broke out, his father went into the military, and he died in the trenches up near uh, Alto Adige, you know, up in that area of Innsbruck, where they were fighting with the Italians. With, yes. Edgar, at a very young age, 12 years of age, lost his father. He had to go himself to pick up his father's body. I have the the documents from when he went to Innsbruck to bring back the body to Vienna to his mother. How long of a trip would that have been? Oh, I guess on the train it would have probably taken, you know, nine, ten hours. Yeah. So you had to go identify. uh, Yeah, the whole thing. Can you imagine a little boy of 12? No. He was the eldest child, and she, you know, she couldn't go. And so it's a, it's a real horror to experience. It's a horror yeah. to experience. And when he came back, she was trying to survive. Everybody was on bread lines. I mean, Vienna was destroyed completely. The empire was gone. Mm-hmm. And it was a people accustomed to... A very nice standard of yeah. life. So and, they had, and they had assimilated very heavily the Jews mm-hmm. in, in Vienna. They, they were no longer orthodox. They no, you know, none of that. They were secular like the, the Jews are principally in, in towns like Los Angeles. So the concept to them was completely alien yeah. because Vienna was a melting pot. Right. You know, you had all, the, all of the Slavs in there, you because you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a huge empire, so you had people from all over, like you have in New York. Mm-hmm. So in this very cosmopolitan city, which it is no longer, right. it is now really... Segregated. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a very white city now, okay? It's a little tiny town which is very, very conservative and closed off from any, you know, big city kind of mentality. They're still living in 1910 as far as I can see. <laughs> very different than he was going back and forth to Berlin, and which was always an open city. Mm-hmm. So he really lost his home in a real way. In a real way. Because the home no longer existed. It no longer existed. Yeah. And then his mother, in her desperation, took him and the other three children, because he had a brother and two sisters who were younger than he was, to the Hoover Commission. And they found a Jewish organization that was sending the children that were starving to death to various countries to host homes. And he was sent to Sweden, as was his sister. His sister actually went before he did. They were wonderful to him, and he loved the Swedes. They were so good to him, you can't imagine. For the rest of his life, he had a real affinity for the Swedish. His two other siblings went to Holland. Now, by the time he was 15, 16, he came back to Vienna and thought he was going back home to his mother. And he walked in on a situation where the mother had found herself a fella. Mm -hmm. New husband. Wasn't a husband yet. Not yet. No, just was a boyfriend. Okay. And he he went bananas. He couldn't handle it. He could not handle it. He had adored his father. I yeah. mean, by now he had a mythical thing going for a, this, this incredible saint of yeah. a father. Siegfried. Siegfried, you know. <laughs> and so he was fortunate that he had a friend, a kid that was a few years older than he was. His name was Joseph Schilkraut, he, who would later on win Academy Awards for playing mm-hmm. Disraeli and for being in the Anne Frank story. So he was a very a wonderful actor. But the important thing was he moved into the house of the Shilkrauts. They adopted him. And the father, he was like Barrymore. Okay, he was the biggest romantic actor in all of Vienna. And so... Rodolfo Valentino. Yeah, that kind of thing. A Jewish one. (laughs) (laughs) But he was working with Reinhardt Mm -hmm. a great deal. So dad went into Reinhardt and... He started off as an actor, as a young actor. He had a wonderful voice, marvelous, rich, deep voice. And On stage. Yeah. But he was always interested in drawing. And he was now taking, you know... So he wanted to... He had his hand in everything. Yes. Art, drawing, yeah. music. Yeah, everything. So he started doing sets for Reinhardt. Reinhardt, mm-hmm. Set design was very, very important right then. We were just coming into Bayreuth, and they were just beginning to build the Mozarteum in Salzburg. (laughs) So he was taken to Salzburg when he was like 16, 17 years of age, and he was working there, building the theaters. And we're talking about minimalism here. This is extravagant, extravagant, huge stuff. Now, he was a very fine painter, but not good enough to... (laughs) He knew he wasn't going to be... Renvar, right? Okay, he just wasn't. So, but he had this visual education, and at that time, when you were making silent pictures, like if you look at uh, any of the early Murnau pictures or such, Mm -hmm. they built separate sets for every single shot. It was a a full-time occupation, and he worked also at Bayreuth, at the Josefstadt Theater. Mm -hmm. 
So he had a tremendous training. And now Reinhardt had his school also in Berlin, where he was working. And so dad was running her back and forth between Vienna and Berlin and Prague and all over to everywhere. He was gypsy lifing because he was a 16, 17 year old kid. As long as he had a bench to sleep on, he was okay. It's all fun for him. He's with (laughs) troops of people. I mean, he had no problem. You could eat on the set, you know, you don't worry about that. So it was an exciting, wonderful life and an incredible training period for him. After that, Reinhardt had a very big production in New York City called The Miracle. And they turned the theater into a cathedral. They were building all the niches that the Madonnas, you know, stood in and the saints stood in and all of this stuff. And it didn't take just one set designer. I mean, you... Army. An army. And guess who was the star? Schilkraut, mm-hmm. the old man. His, the father of... Yeah, so of course, Schilkraut brought his son in, he brought dad in, and dad came to the New York on the first trip. It, it, he was 18 on the Bremerhaven. That's yeah. who you know, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so people say, how did he do it? Yeah. Well, he was, you know, a child prodigy in sense. I mean, he had his apex early. Mm-hmm. And from then on, he never really could recapture it because he wasn't in the right place at the right time. Right. He, st- he started off with the Reinhardts and Schilkrauts, went on to work with Murnau, went <laughs> on to make the Black Cat, yeah. the Universal. Yeah. And then it was after that where... Where, yeah. But yeah. by then, you see... It's almost like Orson Welles. He yes. makes Citizen Kane. He, and yeah, then quite, fr- yeah, you never come back again. Well, also, it's hard for people to visualize he was an art director until he was 30. I mean, the pictures in the book show you that he was working at Universal with his credit underneath, yeah. you know. <laughs> and he was married at that time to an American woman by the name of Joan Warner. And if you take a look at the black cat, you see that the main character, the lady character, is Joan. Yeah. And that's after his first wife. Mm-hmm. So I'm very close to my half-sister, and she was conceived on um, People on Sunday. Oh, wow. Okay. And so she back came, in 1929. Yes. Yeah. He's, actually, she's born in 1929, uh, Christmas period. <laughs> <laughs> came, she came back home to have the baby. <laughs> could, yeah, and that would also be considered a high point, too, with People on Sunday. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. It was an uh, incredible young life before he became a director. Aesthetically speaking, he would still attempt to put those kind of artistic flourishes on the cheapest of whatever film he was Oh, that was the fun of it. And unlike other auteurs who like to kind of play the same record Mm -hmm. in different variations, he wasn't like a Hitchcock or any of those people that really have a same kind of film life. Oh, it's going to be a thriller or it's going to be... Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, it's Ford and it's going to be a Western. That doesn't mean he's going to always make Westerns, but (laughs) his his main form of expression is the West. Exactly. You know, he he examines it from different angles, but, I mean, you always know it's a Ford picture. Well, he was just the opposite. He wanted to experiment with different things. Yeah. So he delighted in taking on a multitude of challenges. The Strange Woman, <laughs> to Moons Over Harlem, to yeah. Man from Planet X. X you know. <laughs> Every one of them he took on and had fun with. Somebody said that he was uh, able to be haute culture, mm-hmm. high culture, yeah. and low 
culture at the same time, simultaneously. And I think that's true. Yeah. And he's bringing in good music and, yeah. and all of that kind of thing into a very commercial <laughs> medium. Do you feel like he felt almost like he might have been swindling people into seeing something that was just crass entertainment, but then throwing in... Yes. <laughs> he was naughty that way. Exactly. Yeah. He got a, got a, got a kick out of that. Okay. He was nuts when it came to music. He admired jazz, and you see it in a lot of his films that he... He juxtapositions, again, the classical with the jazz. Carnegie Hall. Yes, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But at home, I wasn't allowed to have pop music. It was all Tchaikovsky. And <laughs> well, I could have jazz. Okay, you could have jazz. And we could have folk songs, mm -hmm. okay? The Russian Red Army chorus and things like that. But no Elvis Presley. <laughs> no Elvis Presley. And when I was in, for a few years, I was in school in middle school, they call it now, mm -hmm. junior high when I was a girl. And, uh, you know, I wanted to have the the pop records that you could dance in the living room with your your right. friends. That wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed to have comic books. Mm -hmm. Because that, w you know, he was trying to see that I wasn't cheating on my book reports. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't buying classic comic books. So what, I, I would go over to my uh -huh. friends and read them in the garage where they had them, you know. Because <laughs> there were those comic book versions of... Of everything. Yeah, of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very strict about my, my education. Yeah. Although it was not a formal one. I mean, I have no university, nothing. I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. I went to Sedler Stella Adler. Mm -hmm. I studied with Sokka Fiertel. But, I mean, I did not go through school like a normal person at that time. And you didn't have homeschooling in those yeah. days. There was no curriculum being written. No, yeah. none. Yeah. None whatsoever. <laughs> and my mother tried it. When we were in Spain, she had the junior high send over all of my curriculum oh and my, my books goodness. to keep yeah. me up. But the worst thing was that they confiscated. It was in the time of Franco. Oh, yes, yeah. They confiscated everything, including yeah. all of the shipment of materials that my mother had set up. Oh, goodness. Because they found the book that I was reading for my English class. It was a band book. For whom the bells told. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'll say it was abandoned. <laughs> oh, so, wow. so, I mean, we had adventures all over because of what was going on. They were trying their best, but I mean, you know. How amazing to think of that being in memory. Oh, that yes. Franco's Spain is in people's memories. Absolutely. You, know, you, you wouldn't believe If I go take a trip to Barcelona right now. Yeah, you couldn't no, possibly believe yeah, it. There's no they weren't allowed to speak Catalan. Yeah. They confiscated our Zenith radio because Dad was listening to Russia, the voice of oh, Russia. Yeah. I mean, you know, the voice of America was where we were getting all of our information. Dad always was not religious as far as, uh, you know, attending school every weekend or anything like that. Mm -hmm. He hadn't been brought up that way. But he always went to the Yiska services, the death services, mm -hmm. where his father... Yeah, out of respect. Out of respect and said the Kaddish. Well, there was no Jewish synagogue in, in Barcelona, no. forget that. Yeah. So we had to, we got in the car and we drove to Nice, where we could find in a... France. In France. Mm -hmm. That's how I went to Nice the first time. So, yeah. I mean, it was another not year. A, not an overtly joyous experience, I assume. <laughs> well, we made fun of it. Yeah. Everything was fun for us. <laughs> and he was funny. You know, mm -hmm. in a Katzenjammer, Germanic way, 
you know, like these stand-up comics. Which can be the funniest thing in the world. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Jews love to tell stories right. and they're great comics. That's well, part of their, their culture. From Sholem Aleichem to Mel Brooks. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, he was very much uh, a Katzenyama kid, mm-hmm. you know. And so he wasn't always this modant, dark person. No. Well, he, just last night at the book reading, <laughs> Noah reading that part in the voice of of your father <laughs> where he explodes on <laughs> set. And, and Eddie <laughs> Lamar was just hysterical. Well, he was very funny. Yeah. And so even in, in his fits of rage. Oh, hysterical. Yeah, hysterical. Hysterical. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you, if you could get over being frightened, you could just sit down and laugh with tears coming down your face, which is what he did. Mm-hmm. He knew how to laugh, but he would laugh till the tears came out of his eyes. Oh, yeah. He was That's that kind lovely. of jolly person when he, when he really got going. And on the other side, he could be so depressed. Do you think that he experienced a certain catharsis through his films? Oh, I know he did. It was yeah. the only reason he was alive. Okay. His expression through his work, I mean, his great terror was not to have the next picture. Mm-hmm. He couldn't live with that terror. That's where he would hit his lows, Yes, is the fear. Yeah. When he did the last big interview with... Peter Bogdanovich? Bogdanovich, yeah. <laughs> Noah was saying that his fear at that point was not being remembered. Well, not only being remembered, mm-hmm. one of the last things he said to my mother and I when he was in the hospital Mm -hmm. before he had the really massive stroke where he would no longer be able to speak and be totally Mm -hmm. paralyzed because he had multiple strokes. The first uh, time he said to me when he was in the hospital, he said, you know, I don't know where the negatives are. I don't know where the prints are. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anything is going to survive. So that was the basis of my eventually opening Edgar to heal my preservation and uh, saying, it's my job, because I had gone to Mother's house. She was failing, finally, in her 80s. And I said, Mother, where's all the stuff on Dad? And she said, she opened all these old suitcases and things <laughs> like that where she junked things together. Yeah. And I said, Mother, these are just clippings. Where are the reels? Where are the reels? Where's the pictures? Yeah. She says, I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I said, you've got to be kidding. Yeah. And she said, no, I don't have anything other than one print. I have 35 millimeter of green fields, which a friend of mine talked her into donating to uh, UCLA's archive. But other than that, she had nothing. She had some letters, about 50 of them, between herself and Edgar over the years that she had saved. Yeah, a lot of those Noah read yeah. and tried to write the biography. In right, well, he's the only one that read them okay. because I keep them under wraps till I die. And they're at the Academy, at the Herrick. But at the same time, my mother had fortunately in those days, you didn't have what you have today, electronic mm-hmm. stuff. She wrote practically three, four times a week to her mother telling them what was going on on many of these productions. So I had a stack like that yeah. from my grandmother. So whole record keeping. Whole record keeping. Interesting. And we got hold of that. Mm-hmm. And then Noah, on one of his trips that he took to Germany, mm-hmm. on a Fulbright or something like that, found the Paul Kohner has a uh, archive there. And the Ilse Lahn had all the letters from both of them. And so he was able to now look at another vantage point. Again, yeah. you see here, this Completely is like separate. separate 
And my mother was writing differently to her parents than she was writing to his agent. Yeah, that's where we come back full circle what we were talking about before. We're we're the stories we tell. Yeah. And that's going to be different depending on who we're telling it to. All those elements were there. But finally, I could dovetail on where, hey, this really happened. I mean, you know, we're talking in both stories it's going on. Right. Right? Mutual corroboration. Yes, there's corroboration here. Plus... She, he had, uh, my mother had a press agent, and when he died, the family of the press agent gave back all of the letters that she had sent. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a stack like this of his letters. And of course, those were promotion letters. Yes. Totally different angle. <laughs> it's our advertisements. <laughs> These were advertisements, yes. How, how many of the reels, have you, the films have you found? And we're talking about original nitrate, 35 millimeter... Um, oh, well, about... With the preservations. With the uh, preservations going, I would think we have about 12 that we have actually preserved in 35. Full films? Full films. And then there are probably, I have another 35 of them in 16. Okay. But, you know, there's close to 60-some. What is your ultimate goal for the film? Initially, I was interested in the prints, because it's, I call it the Edgar G. Elmer Preservation Corp. It's a non-profit that yes. I work through. And we went over to see my mother with a friend, mm-hmm. and he brought another guy. And we're sitting and talking, and I was thinking that we had to make a uh, a book, because I had, father had written about 20 chapters of a book, which was this is, autobiographical. This is from when he was younger, right? Yeah, well, he was like, you know, he had started it when he was in 1923. Yes, okay. I was reading Yeah. It was thinly veiled, his childhood. So I said, you know, somehow maybe we can cannibalize this because I want a reference to him to live historically. So hope that that can go into film schools, that mm-hmm. that can go into universities. Yeah. Well, the second guy said, no, I want to do a documentary. From another angle, a documentary is really, in essence, a trailer because we can do a trailer that introduces the material to another generation. Yeah, a documentary can serve to build interest. To build interest, and they say, ah, I want to see that picture. Okay. <laughs> now, there was another madness in my planning, and that was I knew that if I had to get the rights to about 12 of the films that I had selected for the documentary, mm-hmm. you can't get clips without preserving the material. Right. So now I'm preserving material <laughs> for the documentary. Yeah. Okay? So I could go to a Universal and say, well, when are you going to do the black cat? Yeah. And what would you do if I wanted a three-minute clip? Yeah. Okay? I can't afford to do that. I can't give you $30,000 for a clip. I don't have it, okay? And so they were wonderful. I had people, connections through Jay at Technicolor, and they said to me, well, we'll give you a favored nations deal. That is, if you don't get money charged from anyone else, we won't charge you. You'll have to be charged for the materials, but we won't charge you for the rights. And we'll give you a a 10-year or 12-year allowance. So once I got the black cat... Mm -hmm. And they started preserving it for their purposes because it was coming to Halloween. I said, it's Halloween. It's, you you got to preserve this and I'll go and I'll go on the pon- dog and pony show. Mm-hmm. Wherever you should, you know, show it. So I went, you know, in Los Angeles and introduced it with Bela Lugosi Jr. <laughs> Who looks just like his father. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a wonderful time. Okay. So we had that picture. And then I went over to Fox and I said, you know, I've got the black cat. 
you do want to be in my yeah, documentary, right? <laughs> All right. Well, then you have to preserve this. Yes. That's a quid pro quo. Right? Yes. And by the time I finished, I got five of the majors. Isn't that amazing? Because, of course, the majors had gobbled up the product even though they hadn't owned it mm -hmm. from libraries. Well, now they want association. They the want the prestige yes. you know, that goes with it. Yeah, so I, at this point, fortunately, I was a distributor, of, um, you know, an mm -hmm. international distributor. So now I've got connections worldwide. I can get the materials for the major. Well, they don't want to spend the time researching mm -hmm. all of that on, a, on, a, on an old film. Half the people there never heard of all Here's someone who will do it for us. Say, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> She'll bring it to us and literally put it in our lap, you know. <laughs> so I built up a, a, a terrific friendship with all these people. Cool. And we finally made the documentary eight, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Then I took it on all of the uh, all of the big festivals and stuff. And we did it in... We did it in New York, and we did it in Toronto, and we did it in San Francisco, and we did it in Olomouc, and we did it in London. Olomouc, yeah. <laughs> Back home. Back home we went. And it was terrific. And then by this time, there were other writers that were coming out. Yeah. But none of them were the biography. Everything was, you know, a study um, yeah. of the films, the given films themselves. Which is what Noah was intending with his book. Yes. At the beginning. But as, once I got hold of him, I mean, it was no way that we, yeah. we could do that because I was dumping all these personal letters in his lap. And he was becoming fascinating. <laughs> so I had people used to call me every two or three every month wanting to write a book on Ulmer when I started getting going mm -hmm. with this. And when I went to the festivals, I went to the Edinburgh Festival on Ulmer, and we did two weeks of screenings. When I came out there, there were like seven writers that wanted mm -hmm. to take on the project. And I, first of all, I said, no, <laughs> if you don't have a deal. I don't yes. do on spec. I am, I've only got one, one book in me. Yeah, you're not an agent or an editor. No, I can't <laughs> do this. <laughs> okay? Number one, I don't do spec. And number two, I was fascinated with the idea of someone who spoke German and had a Weimar background. Mm -hmm. And he had already written his Weimar cinema book. Yes. So I was able to say, this guy's going to understand where Omer's coming from, because he's always a European in an American medium. Culturally, if you get yourself an American or an Englishman, they don't necessarily understand where the hell he came from. This tormented diaspora Jew... <laughs> Who continued the diaspora, as far as I can see? Uh, there's a whole, uh, a whole cult art culture around that, from like Ivy Singer, yes. and Bernard Malamud, yeah, in exactly. literary terms. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really important. I don't know if you've seen the uh, documentary. Oh, you, you gave it to me last night, so I, didn't, I haven't had time to watch it yet. Well, uh, Noah talked specifically it. about that at Ellis Island. He picked that up. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we say gy gypsy, he really was a, was, a, was a wandering Jew. Or the other term he used to all the time was the flying Dutchman. <laughs> he says, I'm a flying Dutchman, you know. <laughs> I'm never going to go settle down anywhere. Well, he has the Eastern European and the Scandinavian, so I see those two terms working. <laughs> For that, you know, <laughs> yeah. they do. Yeah. <laughs> to bring this to a good close, I asked Noah Eisenberg this as well. Taking the entire oeuvre of Ulmer into account. How would you summarize what he was trying to tell the world with his stories? The everyman story. He was really telling a morality play. Mm -hmm. And the voyage that every human has to take of, you know, where his soul is going. There's a loneliness about his films. 
Oh, yes, because there are no easy answers. Faith is a dying thing as an organized system anymore. But the spirituality lingers on because the, the emptiness of the heart and soul of mankind, it's universal. And the secular life has not answered any of those questions. So he was a philosopher, really, in the end. And what makes it amazing is you can watch those films and glean those philosophies in films like The Man from Planet X or yes. The Time Barrier or or People on Sunday, of course. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Such a wide variety, yes. decades of work. Well, he was always examining his own heart. He came from a broken world, and he knew that the world was broken again in the Second World War. And he saw it be broken again when, you know, the McCarthy thing came and really threatened our democracy and our culture. It comes again and again, unfortunately because people try to take the power. Yet I don't even think it's the money. It's the power. Yeah, there's a difference. There's a difference. The greed you can overcome, but power is, yeah. a, is a drug. Being superior yes. to some people around you. to all the people around you. And that's why he loved the ethnic groups mm-hmm. and why he wanted to examine those cultures that... What did he know about, right. you know, blacks in Harlem? Yeah, moon over Harlem. Yeah. We've got the, uh, the Navajo Indians. Yes. And Mexican film. Or go down to Tux- Tuskegee and work with the blacks down there. Yeah. Was in the 30s. In the 30s. Yeah. I mean, three, yeah. three decades before the Civil Rights Movement. It's yes. Amazing. Yes. Well, he, he had no problem with races at all. Mm-hmm. He saw people's souls. He didn't have any interest at all where you were from. Well, I think that's what's interesting is, is watching Moon Over Harlem. At most, the depiction of African Americans in that film the characters, he has gangsters in that, he has gangsters in Detour, mm-hmm. and they're not really portrayed differently. They don't act differently because one's white, no, one's and black. They're and they sh- he showed uh, family life and young people in love. Exactly. and The things that families have, and whether it be uh, any, any background, Ukrainian, mm-hmm. even his films, uh, the Yiddish films, I mean, they are... He took it also into the historical era, era but he, my mother made a film with him, that, uh, which was hysterical, which is a comedy, about the assimilation mm-hmm. of the recent uh, you know, arrival uh, Jew in New York yeah. and how he's trying to assim- assimilate and that's the American matchmaker, okay. Americana Shotkin. My mother wrote all that dialogue and my, his first cousin had the concepts and because he had been a writer and had done musicals that were even uh, presented in uh, Salzburg. At that, at that time, they, they had festivals of, of light-hearted, light uh-huh. opera. So he had all of this going. It was such a rich period, but it was a very difficult period of life. I'm afraid that we repeat over and over again in one variation or another. Well, let's keep making art so we can understand why we do these things. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It was terrific. Yeah, I had such a fun time talking to you. Well, that is my two-part special on filmmaker Edgar G. Ulmer. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with author Noah Eisenberg, and then more especially to Ulmer's daughter, Ariane Ulmer Sipes. 
such a great time talking to them. I can't say how much I appreciate their time and their knowledge about uh, Arion's father, the filmmaker Edgar Ulmer. Hopefully this will inspire a lot of you to go out and check out many of his films. Films more than just his most popular ones like The Black Cat and Detour, both of which are excellent, but maybe check out something like People on Sunday, which was a Weimar-era silent film, which is absolutely gorgeous. Even some stranger films, like his <laughs> his instructional video about venereal disease called Damaged Lives, which is a little bit interesting. You can catch that on YouTube. In fact, you can catch a lot of his filmography on YouTube, so it'll be good to keep the memory of this filmmaker alive for generations to come. Tell all your friends about it. Um, and don't forget to get the book, Edgar G. Ulmer, A Filmmaker at the Margins, to hear more of his really interesting story and his really interesting personality. Stick around for the next episode of Monster Island Resort. I'm going to have Beth Accomando joining me. She's going to talk about a horror film festival in Wales that she had the chance to go to in November. This film festival is called the Abattoir Film Festival. She'll talk about some of the films she saw and uh, we'll hear some interviews she got with some of the filmmakers, some of the directors of the film festival, and most importantly the noted and brilliant film composer, one of my personal favorites, Fabio Frizzi. So I can't wait till you hear that episode. And uh, don't forget to follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Monster Resort. And find me on Facebook. And let's talk about movies. And until next time, stay scared. Stay scared.